How is everybody this morning? All right. Okay, well, before we get started, why don't we just go ahead and bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, bless this time that we spend together in your word. May you reach in and open up our hearts to your message for us. We ask that the Holy Spirit be active in this room and in our lives. We thank you and we praise you for the salvation that we know in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture today comes from Luke 17, 11 through 19, and it can be found on page 1041 of your pew Bible. I'll give you a second. All right. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And there ends the reading of the word. Notice, Jesus Jesus crosses boundaries constantly. He did it when he told Zacchaeus, a tax collector and sinner, he must come to dinner with him. And last week in our scripture, Pastor Nathan read the passage in which, which he sat down at a meal with a Pharisee, but then he praised a woman of dubious reputation who anointed him with her tears and oil. By crossing these social boundaries, he met the outcasts of society where they were and showed them that they had value. They, too, were loved by God. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus not only crosses societal boundaries, but Luke writes that he was physically on the fringe as well. Now, I researched some maps and travel this week so that I could paint you a picture of where all this was happening. (laughs) Now, I'm going to shoot straight with you. No one was happier than I was when GPS came out. Watching me try to figure out a map is a lot like watching a monkey try to solve a math problem. And after spending more time than I'm going to admit to in the back of my Bible with these maps... I went online to see what more learned people than I had to say about Samaria, Galilee, Jerusalem, and travel in Jesus' day. And here's what I found. According to Josephus, he was a first century historian, one could make the trip from Galilee to Jerusalem in three days' time if you were setting a rapid pace and if you were using well-traveled roads that ran along the rivers because people use those for travel and trade. However, Luke is making it clear 
that even though Jesus is making the trip from Galilee to Jerusalem, he isn't using those well-traveled roads. He's, instead, he's taking a circuitous route by way of the in-between places. They were traveling in the borderlands, on the fringe. So it's no surprise as they approach this community, they come upon a fringe group of people. Now, according to Jewish law, when a person is suspected of having a skin disease, like leprosy, they had to go to a priest and have be looked over. And if there was even a suspicion that they had leprosy, they were put into quarantine. And if they were determined to be leprous, they were expelled from the community until such a time that the, pre the priest deemed them clean again. For a leprous person, this was a living death sentence. They were forbidden from seeing their families. They were forbidden from worship. When they came into town, they were commanded in the streets to cry out, unclean, unclean, as they walked through the streets so that people would know that they had leprosy. In some communities, people tied bells around them so that they were immediately identified as being leprous. The leper was to be treated as a dead person by their community. Now they were forbidden from stepping within four cubits of another Israelite, or 100 cubits if there was an east wind blowing. I love the measurements in the Bible. Does anyone here have any idea how many feet four cubits is equal to? We're going to play like the price is right, the higher and lower game until we get there. Anyone? Lower than 12. Higher than four. Who said six? We have a winner. Oh, you were cheating. You were at the eight o'clock service. We have a cheater. <laughs> but that was correct. Six. All right, well, now do, if we have any math whizzes, we can then figure out then if we know that four cubits is six, a hundred cubits, how many feet is that? I hear brains clicking all over the congregation. That's very close, 160. Close enough. We'll take it. We'll take it. Now, for another little calculation, if 160 feet, can anybody translate that into yards? All these, all these math people are like, oh my gosh, we're finally in my, my wheelhouse. There it is, 53 yards. All right, the choir is on fire. All right, well, a football field is 53 yards wide. So that should give you some idea about how far away someone would have to stand if indeed there was an east wind blowing. <clears throat> now, on top of all of these things, leprosy was considered to be inflicted by God as a result of sin. So you add to the pain of loneliness, the separation from loved ones, there's a deep-seated shame that's associated with having leprosy. 
So it's no wonder that these desperate, lonely people, they formed colonies outside of towns. And at the outskirts of this particular town, 10 lepers see Jesus and they call out to him. And per the requirements of the law, they keep their distance, at least four cubits, but they address him by name. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. You see, all the way out in the borderlands, these lepers have heard of Jesus and his miracles, but what they ask for is revealing. They don't cry out, heal us, but instead, have mercy on us. See, we must remember that in their minds, in the minds of every single person that they know, they brought this leprosy on themselves because of their sin. So they're not just in need of healing, but they're in need of mercy. They're in need of forgiveness. I think that Jesus was in the borderlands seeking them out. He knew what they did not and could not and what people would not know for many, many years to come. Leprosy is not caused by sin and inflicted by God, but it's a result of bacteria. And he wanted to heal them of their affliction. You see, to prepare for this message, I spent a great deal of time on the internet reading about leprosy. And aside from the deformities that this illness causes from your body withering away, the disease attacks your nervous system, causing a leprous person to lose feeling in their limbs. In theory, it sounds actually really wonderful not to feel pain anymore. Think of all the times that maybe you've prayed for that. But the reality is devastating. Leprous people step on sharp objects and don't know it. A man by the, um, he's a doctor, his name's Paul Brand, Dr. Paul Brand. He first traveled to India in 1946, and he treated people suffering from leprosy and some of the people that he had treated, they lost their fingers when they were sleeping at night because rats had eaten them and they couldn't feel it, so they didn't know it. In 1997, Dr. Brand wrote a book with Philip Yancey, and I haven't read it yet, but now I'm interested in it. And Philip Yancey quotes, has a quote in the front of the book. He says, Dr. Brand would just marvel at the wisdom of the designer, meaning God, in putting together the body. Dr. Brand was the first person I had ever met who marveled at the design of the pain system in the human body. He would say, thank God for pain. If there's only one gift that I would give my leprosy patients, it would be the gift of pain. Going back to our scripture, the lepers have called out to Jesus for mercy. And instead of saying, well, yes, let it be so, you are healed. He tells them to travel to their priests and remember to be accepted back into their communities, their homes, their temple. They had to be examined by the priest and deemed clean. And they went. That's what the scripture says. And they went. Luke says that as they went, they were cleansed. As they journeyed, they were restored. They were made whole. They could feel their feet and their hands again. Some of them may have been losing their eyesight, and they could see they were healed. Imagine what they were thinking. 
I can see my family again. I can touch my children and my grandchildren, my spouse. I can sleep in my own home again. Not only is my body restored to me, oh, my life is restored to me. I can live on my family's property. I can farm my land. I can worship with my God and my family. I can eat and drink with my friends again. Oh my goodness, at last, they will all know that God has found favor with me. I have been redeemed from my sin, my bondage of this prison, this living death. Well, notice where the focus was in that entire thought process, as wondrous as it was. I can see my family. I can sleep. I can eat. I can live. I can talk. I, I, I. It's totally normal, but there's not any room for God in this picture. And yet this person is 100% thankful that they have been healed. And they're thankful that God has healed them. It's going to take a while for it to sink in and for them to get past all those I statements before they figure that out. And that is how we are a great deal of the time. When good things happen to us, wonderful things, we get around to thanking God Eventually, how often do we remember to do it right in that moment of the miracle? Instead, our mental wheels are spinning. We're planning and thinking all the ways this new event's going to impact our lives, what it means we are processing. We're not thanking the Lord who has blessed us in the first place. However, one of them when he is healed, turns around, comes back, praising God, and falls on his face before Jesus. Isn't that an amazing picture? Who has gotten down on their knees to pray before the Lord? Okay. Do you notice that it feels different in your heart when you do it? Do you feel more surrendered to the Lord? Who has prayed face down on the floor? As I was writing this message, I realized that I hadn't done that and that I really should try it because I have no doubt that it's an amazing experience. Of course, my mind immediately went to the fact that most of the flooring in my house is wood laminate. That sounds uncomfortable. And then I realized we do have some, you know, Oriental rugs, but we also have dogs. And I'd have to, you know, like do it immediately after vacuuming. And then I thought, no, that really wouldn't work either because every time I get down on the floor, I've got one that wants to lick, you know, my nose, my ears, you know, every time I get down on the floor. And then the other one thinks I want to play every time I get down on the floor. Aren't we contrary people? So then I thought, I've got a plan. I'll come in and do it early in the morning, this morning, when I come to church. I'm like, I know that somebody's going to think I tripped and fell up here on the altar. Sure enough, that was true. Somebody did. They thought I'd hurt myself up here. But after we got past all that, I was absolutely right. There is an amazing feeling of surrender when you lie down face first on the floor and pray to God. You're completely surrendered. And I, if you haven't tried it, 
All I can say is that I recommend that you do it. Assuming that you can get up again, I recommend that you do it. Or maybe have somebody with you so they can help you get up off the floor. So, <clears throat> and I want to tell you another reason that I gave it a try because it made an impression on me. Uh, a group of my friends that I'm in a life group with, they go to another church, and after their service, their pastor does an altar call, and people come down to the altar just to pray. And one Sunday, a man came down, and he laid down at the altar, face first. And it touched every single person in my group to the point that when we got together for our Bible study that week, that is the first thing every single person in my group wanted to talk about. And they all said that his act of submissive prayer made the Holy Spirit just palpable in the room. You see, when we praise God, when we get out of the way, when we prostrate ourselves before the Lord, that is when we give the Holy Spirit room to move. And that is what this man did in the scripture. You know, he didn't come back and politely pull Jesus aside saying, well, Master, you know, I just had to come back and say, thank you for that miracle of healing. Praise the Lord. God is good. That's what we like to do, right? Thank you. Praise the Lord. God is good. He came back. He fell down face first into the dirt at Jesus' feet, praising God. He prostrated himself before God, giving the Holy Spirit room to move in his life. He fully surrendered to the Lord. You see, it's at this point in the story that Luke points out that the man is a Samaritan. Of all the gospel writers, Luke delights the most in Jesus' healing of marginalized people, outsiders, outcasts, people that are considered unworthy by the morally uptight and upright Jewish religious majority. Probably because he himself was a Gentile, and considered an outcast by those same people. The fact that this man was a Samaritan makes him doubly marginalized. He was doubly outcasted. He was a leprous man and a Samaritan, unforgiven by God twice over. And not only was he healed, but he was the only one of the ten who came back to offer up thanksgiving to Jesus and God for the healing. Now, after that, it sounds like Jesus asks a series of questions. Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? But if we read the three words that precede those questions, those three words are, Then Jesus answered. So it's clear he's not actually asking questions. He's making statements. He's saying that 10 people were healed and only one returned to offer up praise and thanksgiving to God. This foreigner, this Samaritan. Since Jesus knew all 10 were healed, 
even though nine were well on their way to the priests, that means that he knew when he healed them that nine were going to go straight to their priests and only one was going to return. He knew only one was going to come back praising God for the miracle. And still he healed them all. Still he healed them all. You see, for the one who came back, that one received something more. Jesus says to that one, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Since he was already physically well, that must mean he's now spiritually well. He received a blessing from Jesus. His faith restored his soul. Jesus is in the soul business. As Christ followers, you and I are in the soul business. We pray for God to heal people's bodies, but we're most concerned with the status of their souls. We invite people to church not to boost our membership numbers, but because for most of us, this is where we met Jesus. This is where we heard about his great love for us that went all the way to the cross so that we would have an eternal life with God. We invite people into relationship with Jesus because it's the relationship that changed our lives at the deepest level. It changed who we are. We fell figuratively, if not literally, face first on the ground before God, and that experience changed our walk. It made it better. It made it more joyful because we have the assurance that no matter where we go, Jesus goes with us. Now, who knows someone who doesn't know Jesus? Anyone. Who knows a person in your life who doesn't know Jesus? An unsaved person. Who knows someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ? Wow, all you people know, everybody you know is a saved person. All right, that is, um, that is fantastic. I want, hands up. I want you to keep your hands up. If you don't, if you, anybody who knows somebody, keep them up. Now, keep them up if those people don't belong to a church family. All right, you can put them down, but in, the, in your mind, they are still up. I'm just giving your arm a rest. You now have someone in mind to invite to church. If the idea of inviting someone into the best experience that has ever happened to you scares you, Remember that Jesus only had a 10% success rate, too. Only one in 10 of the people that he healed from leprosy came back immediately and praised God. You see, sometimes what we do is plant seeds, and sometimes we water seeds. And when we're very blessed, we get to sow seeds. But we don't get to do any of those things if we never tell a soul about our Lord and Savior who changed our life. If we keep him to ourselves like a best-kept secret. I was out walking in my neighborhood last week, and I greeted this young man coming home with a standard, how are you? And he came back with an enthusiastic, I am so great, how are you? And I said, well, I'm pretty good, but I don't think I'm at your level. And he then said, do you mind if I tell you about my day? And I said, well, okay. 
Now keep in mind, I have never met this man before at all. I was fairly far outside my neighborhood in my quest for exercise, but I accepted his invitation, having no idea what he was going to tell me. And he proceeded to tell me about his relationship with Jesus. He was from California, but is here as an intern of some sort with a local church. He then asked me if I went to church. <laughs> I told him I did and that I was a seminary student. And we had a rather lively conversation for another 15 minutes or so. And then I continued on my walk. Notice that he asked me if I went to church. If my answer had been no, I am 100% certain that he would have invited me, a complete stranger, to his church. Because he is on fire for Jesus. Because he knows what Jesus is doing in his life and he wants to share it with everyone he meets. Because he wanted me, a complete stranger, to have the same relationship with Jesus that he was experiencing. So that my answer to how are you would be so great. Jesus crossed boundaries constantly. As followers of Jesus, imitators of Jesus, we should cross boundaries too. As we're doing this series on outcasts, it's hard for us to remember that in Jesus' day, we would all be outcasts, every single one of us. I should qualify that. Is anyone here Jewish? Okay, you are good. The rest of us, we would be outcast, marginalized, on the fringes, unaccepted Samaritans, not a part of the family. We forget that because Jesus died on the cross, it changed everything. We became adopted heirs. We became beloved children. We are now sons and daughters. We are not outcasts any longer. We are family. We are loved. At this time, I would like to invite you to come to the altar if you don't have a church family and would like to make First Christian Church of the Beaches your church home, or if you'd like to make a confession of faith, or if you'd like someone to pray with you, or you like the Samaritan, would simply like to come to the altar to give praise to God. I know that there have been times that I have felt compelled to come to the altar, but I didn't want anyone to think that I had any significant problems because I didn't, and I really didn't want anyone to pray over me or with me. I just wanted to kneel and have a worshiping moment with my Lord. But I didn't come because of what other people would think, which takes away from what the Holy Spirit can do in our lives and the praise that the Lord wants to receive. So as we sing, I invite you to come and worship the Lord who loves you. Please come. <laughs>